Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moisel, and these are the women who rule. Welcome back to She Dynasty. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Rashida Hodge. She is the VP of Azure Data and AI at Microsoft. Under her leadership, her team helps key Microsoft clients reimagine their business outcomes. Rashida just recently joined Microsoft starting only two months ago in February 2021, but before that she spent 18 years with IBM, during which time she became one of their youngest appointed executives in 2014, their highest ranking African American woman in 2019, and she also launched IBM Watson AI professional services from the ground up. In addition to that, Rashida is also a founding partner in a VC fund called How Women Invest. She's joined the boards of Girls Inc., Misty Robotics, and received Fortune's 40 Under 40 designation. All right. Hi, Rashida. Hi. How are you today? So good. Thank you for joining us on She Dynasty. I know we've been trying to connect for a while and so, so excited that we finally made this happen. I know, I know. Um, with the pandemic and everything's going on, I feel like we're all busier <laughs> than we thought we were going to be, to be honest. I agree. I agree. Well, congratulations on your new position at Microsoft. I know this is very, very new. You know, obviously going to dig into, you know, your entire journey from where you started to uh, where you are today. So we're very, very excited for those who are listening to hear all about what you do, just because it's so unique and different than any other woman that I've had on She Dynasty. So this episode is very exciting for me. You know, it's it's one of those topics that's a little bit intimidating, you know, because you, you, you know, you read about so much about data and artificial intelligence and you know, it has a different meaning to everyone. And, you know, you hear about robots taking over the world someday. And it's interesting because I always ask um, my colleagues and my staff, you know, what questions I should ask this person. And, you know, one of the questions that always comes up, which is probably so silly to you is, what are you doing to make sure that robots aren't going to take over the world? It's, it's like the first thing that comes to everyone's <laughs> mind. Do you get asked that a lot? I do get asked that a lot. I do not think it's going to happen in my lifetime, although I think that robots will certainly complement, you know, homes and offices, but it will really be an augmentation to, in a good way, many of the things that we do, but it will not, you know, it will not replace us. Um, it will not make humans extinct. It will make us together better. So we shouldn't worry. No, you should not be worried. Okay. That's see, at least that we have a little bit of a peace <laughs> of mind from an expert. So I really, really appreciate that. Um, you know, in full disclosure, this is this is a topic that, you know, I don't have a, a ton of experience with. So um, again, I'm excited to learn. I'm excited for my audience to learn. And so we're gonna dig in and I'm going to um, get started. Can you tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about your current position? You know, you are the VP of the Azure Data and AI team at Microsoft. And so I want to hear exactly what that means and try to just break it down in simple, simple terms, if you don't mind. Yeah. So first of all, I'm excited to join Team Microsoft. And um, it's been about two months now I've been in the role. And um, I'm as excited today as, as I was when I first started. So it's just been a fabulous team. So I'm really excited to be there. In terms of what I do in layman's terms, you know, I am responsible for 
the Azure data services portfolio. And so, you know, this is anything from, you know, AI services, data services, you know, data migration that a customer would do, data modernization that a customer would do, their where, data warehousing. So anything that a customer is essentially doing on the, you know, Azure platform from a data portfolio perspective sits within my remit. And once a customer says, look, you know, we want to leverage Microsoft for these services, my team essentially engages and helps them bring that to life. Awesome. Can you give us an example of what a client would come to you for? Just like a, a really simplified example so people can visualize what you would do. Just analytics. I mean, think about all the data that we have today and you have all this data and you want to know, okay, what is the data telling me? What are the, what is the insights that I want to get, you know, from this information, but your primary goal is working with the client to ensure that the client is realizing value from your services and your product. And, you know, they are, you are helping them solve their business challenges. So a client will come to you with a challenge and you guys will completely come up, build an, a, a, a program from the ground up of how to solve it for them? Or is it something that's already in place that you need to kind of enhance? And it's a combination of both, right? Um, so we have a very robust uh, sales organization that, you know, that will work you know, part, client partnering organization that will work directly with our clients, um, you know, to, you know, to really understand what the client needs are. Once those needs are met um, or identified jointly with a the client, then my team really comes in to execute upon that and to bring that to life. So once my team is engaged, at least at the start, you know, the client has already decided on how they want to go about solving their problem. But the beauty of customer success is once we're engaged, we're always engaged, right? We have a level of in client intimacy where we're working with the client, you know, on a regular basis, really understanding their industry, understanding their challenges, understanding the domain. Um, so again, it's less about the product that we bring to bear, but the intimacy and understanding, you know, of the customer and helping the customer on the journey of how to solve their daily challenges on a regular basis. Beautiful. And I'm assuming that this is probably, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe a male dominated industry pretty much. Are you talking about tech? So absolutely. <laughs> and data and AI, right? I'm sure pretty, pretty much across the board, right? Absolutely. Um, I am often the only woman in the room or very few and, 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 you know, typically I'm the only black woman in the room, right? Very rarely I walk into a room or I guess we're not walking into rooms anymore, but very rarely I get on, you know, a Teams, a Google Hangout, you know, WebEx, whatever your platform is. And um, I see someone that looks like me. That's and that's just a reality of, it's an unfortunate reality of where we still are from a technology perspective. Absolutely. I mean, in so many industries, but, you know, especially the tech industry, very, very male dominated, it must be really an incredible feeling for you to be able to walk into a room, not only as a woman, but as an African-American woman and be able to own that and be a role model for so many, so for so many others. Tell us, tell us about the importance of that for you. I mean, look, it's for me, it's really important. And I think people don't understand the importance, um, you know, of, of, of how impactful it is. And I, 
you know, I was talking to um, a friend of mine recently and he was telling me he's actually a teacher and he was telling me that, you know, a couple of years ago he went, you know, he was invited, he's a white guy and he was invited to, you know, an event for one of his students, um, you know, at a church and it was all black people. And, um, you know, he said, you know, throughout this, through the ceremony, they asked him to get stand up and to, to say a few words. <laughs> And it was the first time for him where he was surrounded. And he said, look, I was surrounded by love and people were hugging me and kissing me. And, you know, he was like, there was love there, but he was like, I was just horrified because I saw no one else that looked like me. And I said, well, darn it. Now, you know how I feel every single day of my life. Like <laughs> that getting chills, just like hearing you say this, because you, we really, you know, take it for granted. Like we don't. Yeah. So I think when you think about it from that perspective, I know um, in our conversation, you know, he said, I, I didn't realize him until that moment, what that feeling was like. And so I share that because I, I go through that every single day, every single day, probably unless I'm with my family, you know, whenever I walk into a room, I size up the room and many African-Americans, you know, do this. We kind of look around and we see, okay, is there anyone in here that like, looks like me? If we see a couple, we sort of nod, you know, at each other and we just give a, a relief right? A fire relief. If not, we kind of brace ourselves for, okay, let's get prepared. Like I'm here, let's get ready. Um, and it shouldn't have to be that way, right? You shouldn't have to put on this film to like, like, you know, so I, ca I call it, you know, getting ready for Hollywood um, to show up at work, but it's something that, you know, we've had to do for many years. And so for me, the way that I look at it is that I make sure that, especially as an executive, I want, you know, other young women to know that they belong in these spaces. They are worthy of these experiences and they have the opportunity to get there. And so I always make sure that whenever I have the platform that I speak for those that are less empowered to do so because I feel that it's my job. Not only is it my job to just do what I'm functionally responsible for, but it's my job to ensure that I bring others along and I inspire others along the way and speak for them as well so that they can see that they can accomplish what I have accomplished. And most importantly, I want them to accomplish it faster than I did, right? I don't want them to make the same mistakes that I did, right? Trying to get here. I want the journey for them to be much easier and much more enjoyable because in every instance, it wasn't always enjoyable for me. Wow. Um, I have to tell you, it's, it's emotional just even like hearing you talk. I mean, you're such an inspiration and I know so many people listening are really going to look up to you and be so inspired by you. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, as you know, She Dynasty is so much about your journey of how you got here. You know, you have an incredible job. You've worked very, very hard to get to where you are. And, you know, you're breaking lots of barriers for, for other women. So we want to hear about, you know, in She Dynasty, your, your four S's, kind of how you got there. So we're going to take a step back and we're going to start from the very, very beginning. Um, so I understand um, that you grew up in St. Thomas on the Virgin Islands. Tell us a, a little bit about your childhood. Yeah. So, you know, I tell people that, um, you know, growing up in St. Thomas, I initially, I didn't realize how much a privilege it was because, you know, St. Thomas, um, territory of the United States, um, but small, only 32 square miles. Most people, when they think about it, they think about beaches and views and sun and fun. 
And, you know, they think everyone that lives on the island has, you know, a beautiful ocean view, which is not the case. I didn't grow up with a beautiful ocean view. But I think one of the things that, you know, I didn't appreciate when I was growing up was the intimacy of my community, the village of my community. Um, I like to tell individuals that I was raised by a village. My mom was a teen mom. She was 15 years old when she got pregnant with me. And like any probably small community anywhere else, you know, there's the community whispers and there's the shame and, you know, um, you know, and all these things. And everyone betted against my mother and they certainly betted against me. Um, I tell people that um, I was counted out from birth, that I was going to be nothing. But I think one of the advantages of growing up in the Virgin Islands is that um, my mom had you know, support, whether it was from the neighbors or other family members. And I really had a nucleus that just grounded me in solid perspectives and gave me a film of confidence that I was able to build from a very early age. And one of the advantages for me in living in St. Thomas is that we're, you know, predominantly, I would say, I don't know the exact statistics, but somewhere I would say 80% black as a community, right? And so I didn't, I was not raised with the perspective of I am less than because of the color of my skin. I saw everyone, right? Whether you were white, you were black, you were Indian, you were Chinese, right? That, you know, we went to school together and we respected each other. And some of us were, had more than others had, but we shared with each other. So a very small knit community. So that small knit community you know, really gave me the opportunity to build a level and film of confidence in myself that I took with me as I continue to further my education and continue to further my career journey. So now looking back, I'm so appreciative of it. Yeah, and a very different perspective from some of the other African-American women who've been on my show, because so many of them have struggled with being the only, you know, growing up in areas where they were the only, you know, black person. And so very different because when you're raised in an area where everybody looks like you, you, you're not dealing or facing with the same issues. So it's really, I haven't heard this perspective. So it's super, super interesting to hear that. So you were, you didn't have that confidence issue. No, I didn't. I mean, when I look, when I grew up, I mean, look, I saw doctors, lawyers, nurses, um, governors that were black, right? So, um, but I remember when I went to college, my grandmother actually at the airport, she turned to me and she said, you are going to be exposed to things and you are going to be exposed to hate and you're going to see things and people are going to mistreat you and you may not understand why, but remember how you were raised. And at first I didn't, I mean, I was 17 years old. I had no idea what she was talking about. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go to college. <laughs> um, but years later, and after I was faced with my first bout of racism and prejudice and bias as I went to North Carolina for college, I remembered what she told me. But because of my upbringing, when I, was when I did deal with that situation, I dealt with it with a form of confidence that I would have only be able to do be, you know, because of how I was raised in that foundation that I received. Was education important to your family or to your community growing up? Absolutely. I mean, look, my grandmother was a domestic worker. Um, so, you know, she, um, you know, she only had barely a high school education. My mom was a big fan of education and particularly given my mom had me when she was young, she didn't have the opportunity to go to college. So it was something that, you know, she, 
really wanted me to have that opportunity to be able to college and get educated. And my mom would always say, no one can take your education away from you. And so make sure that you are grounded first and foremost, you know, with an education. And um, I remember I ended up actually being an engineer because my mom used to push me to read. She was like, you can, you can imagine anything and you can be anything and go anywhere through a book. And so I read a lot growing up and I read in a book that that there was an engineer that solved a problem. And I went to my mom and I said, I want to be an engineer. Like, like they solve problems. And my mom was like, okay, like what is an engineer? I was like, I have no idea, but like, that's what I want to be. They solve problems. And she's like, okay. She's like, that's not a good answer, but let's go figure it out together. And so we went together to explore engineering and what it was about. And so not only was my mom a proponent of education, she was a proponent of curiosity. And I think that that's so important because I think the more that the more awareness you have of what your options are and the more curious you are on what your possibilities are, it really just opens up the door of opportunity much bigger and much wider. Awesome. I bet you don't remember the name of that book. I don't, I I cannot for the life of me. Everyone does do ask me that. (laughs) (laughs) That would be amazing. But a huge shout out to your mom for, you know, obviously she wanted to to give you or inspire you to have something that, you know, she didn't it sounds like. And wow, amazing that she was able to give you that, you know, confidence to do that. Um, you know, I, I always tell the story that, you know, I come from an immigrant family and where they came from, which was North Africa, women just got married, you know, so I was never pushed to do anything. Education was almost like, why do you need to go to school? That's for men. So mm-hmm. I just love to hear, I love to hear stories of, of parents that, you know, don't necessarily have that you know, experience themselves, but they somehow break through and know to push it for their kids. And so that's really beautiful. And big shout out to your mom for that. Yeah. And I'm proud of my mom because, you know, I used to tease her. I said, my mom, she finished high school and then she went to college and she was going to college and working. And I told, I said, mom, I cannot go to college and you not finish college. You have to finish before I do. And she did, you know, she did finish, finish her undergraduate degree. She went to the University of the Virgin Islands. You hired her to go back to school? Well, she, it was, it was a dream of her. She actually, my mom actually wanted to go to Howard University to be a lawyer, but because she had me and she wanted me to stay within, you know, stay, you know, and, and be supported by family, she didn't take up on that opportunity. So she got her um, she got her bachelor's in political science from the University of the Virgin Islands. So she she was a hustler. She was working a full time job and she would go to school at night. And I remember literally going to school with my mom, sitting in the back of the class, right, sleeping on the desk while the professor taught. And so she hustled, but she did finish college before I went to college and I was really proud of her. And, you know, she went on to have a fabulous you know, career. She's now retired, but um, she is my shero, right, because like I said, everyone betted against her, but, you know, she said, I'm going to get ahead because I have perseverance and I'm going to get ahead because I'm going to make sure that I get educated. What an incredible role model. Love that. So, um, so tell us, um, so your, your, your major in college was industrial uh, engineering, industrial engineering. So did you know exactly what you wanted your focus to be, or it was kind of broad at that point? That no, look, my mom was one of those people. She, she, she was no nonsense, right? She was, she's still alive. She is no nonsense. <laughs> and, you know, she was like, look, if you want to be an engineer, you need to really ensure that you know what your path is. And I had a 
uh, I think it was my physics teacher, Mr. Walters, he said, oh, I went to MIT, you should be a computer engineer. And, and around those times, this is like, you know, the, the, in like 95 or so, you know, computer engineering was a thing. And my mom was like, no, she was just like, you have to go figure this out. So she found this program for me at University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign was a summer program for students where you could go and, you know, learn about the different disciplines of engineering. And I went to that program. And as part of that program, that's where I found industrial engineering. And I picked it because it was one of those engineerings where I could solve a computer problem, a mechanical problem, an electrical problem. But most importantly, I took the people and the processes into account. And I love that, right? It's not just about the tactical problem itself, but everything that surrounds it. And so I said, I want to be an industrial engineer. And I came back and told my mom. And then she said, okay, great. Well, then now let's start looking for industrial engineering school. So she was there. She was about precision. She's like, don't, you know, we're not just flying around around here trying to figure this out like you know let's figure out exactly what you want to do so when I went to North Carolina State University I literally applied there specifically due to their industrial engineering program how incredible to have someone who just like is in your corner who just like guides you like that that's that's so awesome I love to hear that so tell us what was your very first job out of college my very first job out of college, well, I worked while I was in school, first of all. So I've had a job since I was like 13. <laughs> but um, actually, while I was getting my master's, I actually started working at IBM. And so while I was getting my master's, I was still on the fence, like if I wanted to go get my PhD or if I wanted to you know, work in the workforce. And um, I was in the Research Triangle Park area, and that was a pretty large you know, site for a lot of different technology companies. And, and IBM was one of the large technology companies there. And I had a classmate of mine that did an internship at IBM um, one summer. And he says, Rashida, like, you've got to come to IBM. Like, it's just great. And I said, dude, I was like, IBM doesn't hire industrial engineers. And he was like, yes, they do. I was there. And here's all the fabulous things I did. So anyway, I gave him my resume. And then a couple months later, IBM called me back and you know, I was, by that time, like I said, I was already doing my master's and they said, no, like, we're going to be flexible. We understand that you're in school, but we would just really love to have you. And it's a great, you know, opportunity. So I started working part-time while I was getting my master's. And then after I finished my master's, I then joined IBM full-time. I actually joined through a leadership program. They had a supply chain leadership program at that time where you do four, six month rotations you know, for um, high potential candidates. And I was lucky enough to get accepted as part of that program. And that was, um, and the rest is history. Were there any other women in that program? Uh, there was, but interestingly enough, as part of that program, it's interesting. I was a little bit of a trailblazer in this program because the program actually focused on candidates that had about five years work experience and had an MBA. I didn't have either. But I had my master's in engineering, my engineering, and I had also worked throughout school. So I, I remember going to my IBM manager at the time and I said, hey, look, I found out about this super high potential program. And I want to compete for it. I said, I'm going to have a master's in industrial engineering. Like, come on, like I can compete with an MBA grad, like seriously. And he's like, well, look, let's try. And I said, great. So I, so I applied for the program and he supported me. And then I made it to sort of the finalists, you know, where I got to go to IBM's headquarters up in Armonk to, you know, to compete and interview for about a week. 
with, you know, all these recently graduated MBA candidates, but um, I got into the program. I was the only person that had a, that did not have an MBA that only had a master's in engineering and IBM saw the value of that and actually implemented a second tier of the program, probably about two years later, where they specifically focused on individuals that had masters in engineering. Incredible. And so two years into your time at IBM, you decided to move all the way to China and you wrote in your pre-interview that you took on a job that no one else wanted to do. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, when I went to China, it was like in, I think it was like 2003, 2004, somewhere around there. Very bold move to move to China. I mean, talk about going to a place where, you know, not a lot of people look like you. Yeah, it was not easy, right? And, you know, I tell people like, you know, it was a time when everyone wasn't raising their hand to go, right? Everyone was like, oh yeah, I want to go there. Like it was still new. It was actually from an IBM perspective and a lot of companies, it was a hardship location, you know, quite frankly, but it was a time where, um, you know, a lot of companies were, you know, looking at their global operations and expanding, you know, globally. And I was giving this opportunity and, you know, I raised my hand and I said, you know, I want to go and do this. I'd never been anywhere in, I think at that time I'd never even been overseas. I'd never been anywhere outside of the U S before. And so I got this opportunity to go to, to Shenzhen, China, and um, it was one of the best decisions I ever made professionally because it really allowed me to learn a new part of the business, to really roll up my sleeves, to work in a very different environment, different culture, um, and to see how things are done in another culture. And it also helped me to mature my leadership skills as well, right? It's, it's different, you know leading in different cultural environments. And, you know, also it was a good test for me. I tell people when I was in China, I felt every day that I was a Christmas ornament because, you know, I would literally walk to get a cup of coffee or go to the store and people would stop, literally just stop and stare at me. And they just like, look at me. And I would never forget, there was a time when, you know, I was going for lunch with a colleague of mine and this little girl, she was looking at me and talking to her mom. And I, and I said, I said to my colleague, I said, I said, Amy, I, I know this little girl is saying something about me. Like, what is she saying? And she's like, oh, you don't want to know. And I said, yeah, I got thick skin. Tell me. She said, she's asking her mom, why are you so dirty? So this little girl thought that the color of my skin was dirt. Like I didn't shower for six months. And so I told her, I said, well, can you ask her mom if I can let her touch me? So we went up and then her mom said, yes. And then the little girl, like, you know, took her hand and touched my hand. And then like, she touched it like slightly. And then when like nothing happened, like I guess dark didn't fall flying away. She like rubbed it really harder. And then her mom came and rubbed it really harder. It was like, it was amazing. Right. And, but I used it, you know, a lot of times people would say like, weren't you offended that that's rude. And I said, no, it was a teaching moment, right? You have to realize that they had never seen a black person in their lives. And so I wanted to teach them that I was real. I was a human just like them. And so I think a lot of times, you know, when it comes to these topics, we have to we have to teach people. We have to teach people about us and we have to use these moments as teaching moments. What a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. So you made another shift soon after, which was again, like so brave. I love just reading your story. You moved to Slovakia, from China to Slovakia. What another huge cultural shift. Tell us why you made that decision and what that was like. 
Yes, I came back from um, from China. Was working in New York, and um, you know, I always tell people, my mentees, do a good job in the job that you're in because you just never know what can happen. And I share that because I actually ended up running into a guy that I worked with. His name was Peter Tannell, German guy, just amazing. And we had worked together probably about two years or maybe three years before. And he's like, what are you up to these days? And, and I told him what I was up to and, you know, told him that I was looking for the next opportunity. And he's like, you know, I've got the right opportunity for you. He was like, we'd worked together many years ago on, on the strategy of our global operations and actually have a role leading some of the transformation in one of our global centers. And he's like, you know, are you, would you be willing to come to Bratislava, Slovakia? And I said, Bratislava, Slovakia. And I was like, well, I was like, I knew, I knew we had a, a similar location in Madrid, Spain. I was like, well, Peter, can I go to Madrid? <laughs> and he was like, no, Rashida, you can't go to Madrid. The offer is in Bratislava. And um, he said, you are going to learn so much from this experience. Right. He was like, you, it's, it, it will be such a growth opportunity for you. He was like, going to Madrid is going to be easy, yeah. but going to Bratislava is going to be much harder for you from a personal perspective, but it's going to grow you and it's going to stretch you. And I think in that moment when he said it to me, I said, okay, you know, sounds like the right thing to say. But I, I said, yes, that I, you know, I was going to go. And I'm, you know, for me, I guess growing up on 32 square miles, I've always been a curious person, right? So whenever I have the opportunity to go do something different and to go explore, I've always been that person to say yes to the things that people would say no to. I mean, I probably at that time couldn't, couldn't identify where Bratislava, Slovakia was on a map. I could probably tell you the region, but it was like, identify the country, I would have failed the test. But I went, actually ended up staying for four years. I initially only signed up for one year, but I actually ended up staying for uh, four years. Um, there was just so much to do in the team and IBM was really significantly growing in that region. And um, it was, again, one of the best opportunities, you know, that I made. I, I got to work across our growth, some of our growth regions at that time with the growth of um, the Middle East and, and Africa, which was supported out of, you know, Slovakia. Um, and at that time as well, from a culture perspective that, you know, Slovakia had just joined the European Union and was adopting the Euro. So I actually got to see how, you know, they as a country sort of made that shift into the European Union. So it, it was just a lesson for me and a learning perspective on so many different levels, not just from a business orientation perspective, but um, you know, seeing a country, you know, transition their economy and, and the people and their government um, all at the same time. And you don't get to witness those transitions firsthand on a regular basis, on a daily basis. Sounds like an incredible experience. So how many years total uh, were you with IBM? I was with IBM for 18 years. Incredible loyalty. Wow. That must have been <laughs> such a hard decision to leave. I can't even imagine the pressure of that. Um, so one of the questions I have, and I always find this so fascinating because, you know, my, my, my route is very different because I'm an entrepreneur with a small business, which is very different than a corporate path. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I interview a lot of uh, women on She Dynasty that either are on the more entrepreneurial side or on the corporate path. And I, I tend to learn more from women like you because it's not my world. And, you know, what I, what I think is it's, it's, from my perspective, it seems so much more difficult to navigate how to kind of climb the, the ladder or kind of rise up in a corporate environment 
than it is as, I mean, obviously they each has different challenges. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you start a business, you have your own challenges, but you know, you're not dealing with the politics of a company and layers of people that you have to get through and proving yourself. You know, it's almost like you have to prove yourself to your, you know, you prove yourself to yourself when you're an entrepreneur. Um, you have to do that all obviously on the other side as well, but there's all these other layers. And so I just want to, I, I want you to talk for a little bit about just maneuvering that, you know, that corporate environment. And where did you find successes as you kind of, you know, obviously worked very hard to get to where you are to prove yourself. And I'm sure there was a lot of people on your way, um, you know, that maybe weren't as positive, maybe some were, but talk a little bit about that process. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of people look at my journey and say, oh, wow, you're, you know, you were 14 on the 40 and, you know, they see all the, they see now, but they didn't, you know, see the hurt, the pain, the trials, the tribulations, right? I call it a roller coaster, a great roller coaster. It feels like I wasn't in Six Flags, um, but it was a roller coaster. It has its ups and it, and it has its downs. But, you know, I think for me, I approached my career with perseverance Number one, when I, when I first went to college, I remember interviewing for an internship. I, I won't name the company, but I interviewed for an internship and the manager that was interviewing me mocked me in the entire interview. Um, at that time, I was fresh from St. Thomas, so I had a really thick island accent. And, uh, you know, the, the interviewer blasted me and said, I can't understand what you're saying. Ha, ha, ha. Do you guys uh, live in huts there? Do you, do you wear palm tree skirts? And, you know, crazy, silly things um, that obviously, you know, was not true. And I remember um, going back to my dorm and literally crying, like not crying, bawling tears. But, you know, and I went, I went to our lab and, you know, went to the internet and I taught myself to actually to speak in a way where no one can understand that I have an accent. So basically like we're talking right now. And I wrote his name down back in those days, you would never, um, a lot of the recruiters were the same over time. So I wrote the person's name down and that next semester when I felt like I perfected my, my American stateside accent, I signed up for that same recruiter. And in that conversation it was the total opposite right? That recruiter was like, you're amazing. You're fabulous. Like, wow, we got to bring you on site for the next interview. And I went along for the journey. I let them bring me on site. And then the end of the day, they were offering job offers and they offered me a job and they said, what do you think? We'd love to have you. And I was like, well, where's your manager? I'd love to meet, you know, meet him again. When the manager came in the room, I said, thank you for your offer, but no thanks. Because let me go back a couple of months when we actually met. I looked the same, but I sounded different. And uh, you didn't think that I was worthy. But now that I sound a little bit more like you, that you feel that you can resonate with me just a little bit more, I'm now good enough for you. But I said, you're actually not good enough for me. And so thanks, but no thanks. And I was, I think I was maybe 19 at that time. And it was a tough thing to do, right? I remember I was scared. Like I was so scared. Telling this story, it sounds like, you know, I was like, you know, a superhero, but I was, I was so afraid, right? About what I was doing, but I knew I had to do it, number one. And I knew I had to do it because one, I wanted to prove to myself that 
him, him making fun of me and him humiliating me had nothing to do with the merits of who I am and what I brought to the table with my character. It was about him. And I share that story with you because experiencing that in college for that internship, you know, built within me a film of perseverance that I took with me when I entered corporate America, right? And, you know, in each role and in each interaction, you know, that I had, I built upon that to say, I'm always going to bring my best self to the table. I'm always going to do good work. And I'm going to do it extra, right? Because I know as a black woman that I have to do it extra, but I'll do it. I'll stay late. I'll come in early. Um, I'll put in the overtime. I'll take on the extra work. I'm okay with doing that, but I'm going to stand up for myself and I'm going to have a voice because I know that my voice is powerful in everything that I do. And so for me, that was a foundation of how I took on and dealt with those challenges as I was presented with them, you know, in, in corporate America, number one. And number two, you know, I'm a believer in the perspective of ask for what you want and put it out there. I remember when I started the supply chain leadership program at IBM, you know, I looked, I went into our internal directory and I said, I want to be a general manager. I didn't know exactly like what that really meant. <laughs> in my twenties, but I was like, I know, like, I want to be a leader, but I had a vision for myself. And I said it out loud, every single person that I spoke to, I said, you know, I want to be a general manager. And then they gave me their perspective and they gave me their thoughts. And it sounds kind of crazy, but I tell people, you know, people can't help you if they don't even know where you want to go. So I wanted to make sure that everyone knew where I wanted to be. And if they wanted to, you know, jump on the bus and help me, let's do it together. Right. Such amazing advice. And, you know, I love, I always um, find patterns on She Dynasty. And I think you're the third woman who I've interviewed who talks about how important it is that you let people know what your goals are, because what it does is it puts some of the responsibility on them to help you get there if they're good people. Right. And so I think that is incredible, incredible advice. You, you say it out loud, people understand what your vision is you start to manifest it and they become a part of your journey to get there. So I think that's, yeah. And I, no, I totally agree with that. And, and I'm about that personally and professionally. I'm all about put it out in the universe and the universe will work it out. Yeah. And, but I was also very intentional too with my career. Do you feel like you dealt with a lot of politics, people standing your way, people feeling like you weren't worthy or couldn't do it, got not good enough, or just people who maybe wanted the positions that you wanted did you deal with any of that? Yes, I did. I, I will never forget. It's interesting because um, I, I remember when I was applying for my MBA and um, I, I've never been a great standardized test taker. And so, but I've always been a high performer, honor student. And I remember talking to my manager who was a woman actually. And I said, um, you know, I just finished up my standardized tests. You know, here's my score. It's not like great, but it's solid. And I spoke to these schools about it. And she was like, do you think you're going to be able to work and, you know, go to school at the same time, you know, with those scores? And I said, yeah, I said, I'm just not a standardized test taker. It's just not my thing. And then at that time, to be perfectly honest, it was already agreed upon that, you know, I was going to you know, get the support to go do this. And 
you know, I remember that manager coming back to me and stating, oh, we can't support you. Like, we just don't think that, you know, that with your standardized test scores and, you know, the job that you have, that you can manage all this. Like, we just don't think you have the capacity. And I was stunned because literally this manager took you know, information that I told them in confidence, right. That had no impact on me getting accepted because I was already accepted to the schools had no impact at all around that decision to basically prevent me from pursuing, you know, my MBA. And I remember going to talk to one of my mentors about it. And he said, you know, Rashida, he's like, you're going to learn in life. There's just certain things that, you know, you, you don't need to share and you should not have shared that with her because she used it you know, against you, she's certainly not in support of you doing this. And that was hurtful. Yeah, That was super hurtful for me. A good learning moment for you in terms of your career. And, and I, this is something I've learned the hard way too. You have to be careful what you share. Sometimes you have to be very, very careful because sometimes it gets twisted and turned around and used against you in ways that you will never, ever expect. I think that's also some really, really good um, takeaway advice. From yeah. And, and that was hard. And that's something that I continue, I struggle with and I try to perfect over time because I'm a very authentic personal person, right. Growing up in the islands, like, you know, everybody knows everybody's business. <laughs> so, um, that's just how I've, I've grown up, but, um, it was that first experience. And, and, and what shocked me the most is that this person was a woman and this person was also a woman that had high aspirations. And I'm like, why are you trying to put me into a box? Like, why aren't you supporting, you know, me? Um, there's a quote that you have uh, in your pre-interview. It says, you said, I've been in many rooms where the client says, please let me know when the VP arrives. And I have to say, oh, that's me. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about that. I love that because, you know, I, I tell people I suffer from the trifecta. I'm a woman, I'm black and I look like I'm 25. I got to thank my mom for that. She's given me these great youthful genes. So I am always underestimated, always. Like people are always looking for somebody else. And I'm like, who are you looking for? And it's interesting because I remember the last time this happened, we were all getting coffee and, you know, the team was there and the, the client came in and it was going to be a tough meeting. And the client came in and say, oh, let me know. And you know, your VP arrives and then, you know, the rest of us can join and get started. And then everyone just froze, right? Because <laughs> they, they didn't know what to say. They're like, oh, like, you know, they're looking around and I say, hey, oh, here I am. Like, let's get started. I'm having coffee. Do you, do you want me to get you a cup? And, you know, and it's like, oh, I say, yes, I am. I'm Rashida Hodge. Really nice to meet you. I, you know, and so, um, you know, for me, I don't get offended by it at all. It's a, um, again, I think you have to teach people how to treat you. And in these moments, it's teaching people that what you think a VP looks like, what you think success is, it looks and feels and may act a little bit different from you. And that's okay. Yeah, it's really crazy. You're kind of making me tear up a little bit just because it's, it's really emotional to hear you say this, just, you know, so incredibly proud of your accomplishments and what you've done and what you represent. And like, you're such an inspiration again, you know, you're not even in my industry, but like, just, just hearing your stories and, and 
all that you've done, I have to tell you, just wow, just wow. Just oh, thank, thank you. you, Valerie. Thank you for sharing. I mean, I, I just I hope everyone's gonna get as much out of this as I am. All right, we're gonna end on some rapid fire questions. So okay, really just you know one or two sentence answers. Okay, all right. And first question. Here we go. What keeps you up at night? Living a life of significance. If you could completely switch careers to something that has nothing to do with what you're doing, what would you do? Wow. Um, I would go into the entertainment industry, actually. Okay. What do you feel is the biggest challenge facing women today? We just need, we just, we just need to have the opportunity. We need opportunity, we need equity, and we need to be in the space. If you were to give yourself one, your younger self, one piece of advice from everything you've learned, what would that be? Pace yourself. What is your biggest strength? I think my biggest strength is not about me. It's about lifting and bringing others along. What is your greatest weakness? My inability to pace myself. What does success mean to you? So I'm not a big fan of the word success anymore. Um, you know, I believe in significance because I believe that success is about what you do individually for yourself. And I don't think it's about yourself. It's about others. And I want to do things for the benefit of others. And so for me, it's about living a life of significance. And the last question is, what is, what is your one actionable piece of advice for those who may be interested in, in the industry that you're in? Like, how do you get started? Start, opt in, opt in. It's not rocket science. We can all do it. We just need the door to be open. So opt in and show up. Awesome. All right, well, Rashida, I think we have completed today's session. I, again, I'm so, so- Was it okay? Oh my gosh. I, I'm just blown away by you. I, I want to see you, you're, you're such an inspiration and I know everyone listening is, is going to be so wowed. So thank you for being here today. We're so, so excited to have you on, on She Dynasty. I'd also like to thank um, our mutual friend and colleague, Eugene Seagriff for connecting us. Thank you so much for having me. It was really my pleasure. Hopefully I answer all the questions. I think I went on a tangent sometimes. <laughs> I mean, literally just, uh, I'm so inspired by you. 